Illustrated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And this week we are all about academia in fiction from the slightly murky in Delia Owens's Where the Crawdads Sing to the very, very, very dark <laughs> in These Violent Delights by Micah Nemerever. <laughs> So, Emily, what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with These Violent Delights by Micah Nemerever. What a name. I know. And you got me this, but I, I don't did. think you know what it's about. <laughs> I have no idea. I simply picked a book from the list. Yes. Uh, I'm actually going to take it out the sleeve because I hate the feeling of it. Ah. So, there we go. Because everyone needed to know that. <laughs> okay, so this book came out in 2020. And is a very dark, dark academia tale. Okay. It begins with the prologue, where a man is being coerced into a car and drugged by two teenage boys. And then the story begins and flashes back to where those two boys met, which is in an ethics class. Ooh! (laughs) So Paul and Julian's obsession with each other begins here and very quickly mutates into... Mutual passion and destruction. <laughs> Their relationship is codependent and violent, but also like somehow really beautiful in like a twisted way. And basically, you feel on edge this entire book because you're waiting for that moment that you glimpse in the prologue, and you're questioning what could possibly lead them to doing that. Mm. And I should also point out that although the characters are young adults, this is not a YA book. <laughs> so you been warned. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought I would explain a bit of the inspiration for this novel and I know it might sound like I'm spoiling things a little by doing this but I promise I'm not because it's a dark academia story as I've explained before a big feature of this genre is that you know the bad thing before it happens Mm -hmm. and then you're reading to find out why it happened. So on that note in the author's note Nemerever explains that he was influenced by two murder cases. The first is Leopold and Loeb, who were two wealthy students who murdered a 14-year-old boy in America in the 1920s. And they decided that they wanted to demonstrate how intellectually superior they were and pull off the perfect crime. Right. And the other crime Nemerever was inspired by was the Parker Hulme murder. So in this case, it was two teenage girls in New Zealand in the 1950s who planned and executed the murder of one of their mothers because they saw her as an obstacle in their relationship. Whoa. So although this book isn't like a retelling of either of those cases, they are where the idea originated from. So basically two people who think they're superior to everyone else and take very extreme actions to prove that. Okay. And then for this novel, that idea was then merged with like ideas of queer alienation and being Jewish in America in the 70s. And in his words, the lonely arrogance of clever young adults, which is <laughs> such a great line. That is a good line. <laughs> so that was quite a long introduction, but I do actually have some quotes. So... This novel's told in third-person narration, but it's all from Paul's point of view, apart from a couple scenes from that drugged man that mm. I mentioned before. And I love being inside Paul's brain because some moments are so 
human and relatable, but others are terribly dark and very frightening <laughs> to read. So I'm going to stay away from like plot things with these quotes, but I have a couple from near the beginning of Paul's growing love for Julian, and then a couple slightly darker ones, but they're still from near the start, so they're not like too mm. horrific. Can I just say the pages in that book are amazing? Yeah, like the it has a name. Yeah, it's all rough and like. Yeah, it's called Deckle Deckle Edges. Mm. Yeah. So this first quote is from the first time Paul is in Julian's dorm room and they're just kind of getting to know each other, they don't know each other that well and Julian has explained that he's come to this college to be away from his very wealthy family who he doesn't like, although we don't exactly know why he doesn't like them yet. Okay. A few details in the room that had struck Paul as strange at first sight now began to make sense. The string of maritime signal flags pinned to the wall above the bed, clashing brightly with the room's general aestheticism. The crisp new wool of Julian's winter coat and the conservative prep school shape of his clothes. These details rang false because they had been chosen by someone else, someone who lacked Julian's wit and energy and his ability to ignore everything beneath his notice. It's not tragic or anything, Julian was saying. Don't get me wrong, it's just tedious. I hope you won't hold it against me, being, you know, a half-shiska trust fund baby who's never had to work for anything. I usually lie about it. Julian's vulnerability was more calculated than it pretended to be, but Paul decided not to fight it. I'd never hold it against you, Paul said. I've actually been thinking this whole time how I can't really make sense of you. You're nothing like anyone else, and now I know it's not because of where you come from. Nothing made you. You just are. He didn't know before speaking how nakedly earnest the words would sound, but he only regretted it for a moment. One corner of Julian's mouth went a little higher than the other when he smiled. Paul remembered something he'd read in his art history class last semester about how the Japanese believed there was something poignant and endearing about asymmetry. Damn you, Fleischer, said Julian. Now I'm going to have to try and live up to that. His <laughs> vulnerability was more calculated than it pretended to be. Mm-hmm. What a fucking line. Yep. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, so this quote is about, I think it's 32, yeah, 32 pages in, and I think you can already see that Paul idolises Julian a bit, but he's also still aware that Julian's a manipulative person, mm. and the story about his family is like the beginning of that. And I also like that you have these lines dropped in throughout the book about like something they learned in art history class or something they read in a book to show that these characters are really well read and like they are clever and they bond over their shared interests and intellect. Mm. So that actually brings me onto another quote, which is only a few pages later, but there has been a bit of a passage of time. And here, yeah, so in here they... They are friends at this point, so okay. a wee bit of time has passed. There was something mesmerising about the way Julian moved. Carelessly graceful, as if he weren't excruciatingly conscious of every atom he displaced. Paul had tried all his life to erase the anxious delicacy in his own gestures, especially the hesitant motions of his hands. For a while he thought he could teach his body to follow Julian somehow, if only he practised long enough. He spent hours in front of his bedroom mirror, trying to relax into that loose-limbed elegance. 
but Paul was fettered and careful, and even his weak imitation of Julian's posture looked wrong. When they walked together across campus, Paul could all but see the two of them from the outside, a dark-haired Apollo painted in flowing Boscelli lines and the ungainly stork of a boy beside him trying to keep in step. He could tell other people were thinking it too, especially the friends of Julian's who thought themselves more deserving of Paul's place. They never hid the disbelief in their smiles as they glanced between the two of them, clearly wondering why. Because Julian did have other friends, though Paul rarely saw them. Julian had thought of studying drama in his first semester, and occasionally the two of them were accosted in the snowy path by one of Julian's buoyant, overwrought theatre friends. Other times the interlopers were colleagues from the arts pages of the student paper. These friends spoke in an identical arrogant drawl and made insipid comments about Max Sterner, and they never seemed to realise that Julian's replies were making fun of them. After the initial introductions, Paul always hung back at Julian's side with his arms folded, staring at his shoes. If the friends acknowledged him at all, it was in the third person. Your friend here, never his name. But no matter how mediocre or shallow the other friends were, even they could tell Julian was destined for something. They might not understand it, but they knew. When Julian addressed them, Paul watched the way their faces opened. They smiled as if they were already thinking of what they would say years later, that they knew him when he wasn't anyone yet, that they were there before it all began. This is a very piercing book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. So yeah, you can see that kind of idolation again that Paul's doing to Julian. He talks about how beautiful Julian is, how liked he is. But there is that darker side coming through, I think, where Paul's talking about spending hours trying to move his body like Julian's or like that smugness of knowing Julian more than the other people. Mm. Like, I think you can really see the beginnings of that obsession and like codependency that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So I only have a couple more quotes. The first is very short, just a couple lines, but I wanted to show just a quick example of how their relationship does evolve into something very sinister and yeah it's just a short one but it's he had all but pleaded for it the precision and scalpel sharp intimacy of julian's cruelty he had needed to remember that they were monstrous together merciless twins conjoined at the teeth oh yeah i love that image but i hate it (laughs) Um, it's very disturbing and there is a lot of focus on the body in this book. So Paul's kind of obsessed with bodies. He draws like skeletons with like flowers that coming out of like the rib cages. Mm. Like I feel like that's kind of like a very Pinterest like thing. But he draws those. He collects insects, you know, like moths and butterflies, and he pays attention to how people move and speak, which you could see in the earlier quotes. Mm. And Julian was in an accident in the past, and so he has all these scars in his body that Paul is, like, equally mesmerised and repulsed by. Like, he just, he focuses on it so much, and Julian's, one of his lungs is kind of collapsed, like, it's smaller than the other, and Mm. he'll, like, Paul will, like, listen to it, and, like, listen to, like, the rattle, like, in it, and it's just, oh. Yeah. So there's just a lot of bodily imagery going on and not all of it is nice. I love that though. You know I love a gruesome body image. Yeah. Again, I actually think this is a book you would really like, but it's 
it's a lot. Yeah. But I think Sounds he really would... sinister, but yeah. I'm already on board. Yeah. Yeah, as I said, I think without going too much into the plot, this quote shows how their relationship is not all roses. Mm. They're cruel to each other and it does eventually lead to this irrevocable, violent act. But I think their relationship's so fascinating to read about. I know I use that word a lot, but they're they're all each other has for like various reasons, but they're so wrong for each other as well. And it's just very like I've put deliciously dark mm. <laughs> to read. And this is my last quote, which I've included because it relates to something we've talked about on here before. So you and I both talked about when you're writing a journal, who are you writing for? Like, are you writing it for yourself or for an audience? Yeah. So I have a paragraph on that. Oh, God. (laughs) This is going to see into dark areas of my soul and I'm not going to like it. Paul could only forgive himself for keeping a journal if he told himself he was documenting history. He wrote it for an audience, one who would only read it after the end of a life he'd made significant. He imagined a future biographer pouring through his juvenilia for the signs of future greatness and how that person would perceive the moments of weakness and self-indulgence in between. In hindsight, his frustrations and fears would be taken as evidence that he was still human. But in the present, before he'd made anything of himself, they meant he was only human. Well, fuck. (laughs) So... I mostly picked that because I did kind of laugh a bit when I read it because we have obviously both thought about a future biographer reading our journals one day. Yeah. But I do also think this quote, which again is really early on in the novel, signals that Paul does have the sense of superiority because it is quite narcissistic to assume oh, yeah. that not only will you achieve future greatness, but that biographers would pour through all your belongings <laughs> because of it. Yeah. And to like to write something for that's for yourself with that in mind yeah. is like the ultimate act of like masochistic narcissism yeah yeah definitely <laughs> and i also think when paul suggests this tell me if you agree or not but this is how i read it he's assuming he'll be dead and he's assuming he'll have done something terrible because the wording of documenting history end of a life makes me think that the future greatness he'll achieve will be at the end of his life and the fact that people would be looking for the humanity in his journal makes me think he's planning to do something that is at the very least controversial oh see i i didn't get that i read it as like well i heard it as like godly like a god complex Mm, so like he thinks that he's going to do something so amazing that people are going to be looking for evidence that he was fallible yeah, I think both work for yeah. his character, so yeah, Pro- <laughs> probably is both to be there. <laughs> but no, that's so interesting. Yeah, so I, I do think it's worth like pointing out this dichotomy in Paul, which is what I liked about the book, which is that he does have this superior feeling to everyone around him, but Julian often makes him feel insignificant, like when he's comparing his bodies mm. in that earlier quote. I just think he's such an interesting character to like be in the head of, because sometimes I'm sympathetic to him. Like, he does have quite a few tragic things happen to him. But others, I'm just really scared of him. <laughs> like, it isn't a main character who you're supposed to love. And I do 
love seeing myself in books but I also really enjoy books where I'm being forced into someone's perspective who I would never want to like be or meet mm-hmm. <laughs> and Nemo ever has definitely achieved very nuanced characters whose world and relationship like you cannot help but be sucked into because like I said at the start their relationship does appear beautiful at times and like part of you kind of roots for them to be together but then it's also very cruel and toxic and not the kind of relationship you should be in so yeah (laughs) but yeah that's me today that's these violent delights I really liked this one it starts with such a disturbing scene and then it's really like slow burn Mm. for the rest of the novel which I thought was pretty effective in creating loads of tension yeah because it's a chunky Um, boy yeah it's quite a big one and yeah as I said their relationship is so captivating and my like slightly cheesy one line review of this novel is that it puts the dark into dark academia oh (laughs) but yeah very good I highly recommend it and I've not really I, I honestly can't remember where I came across it but I just don't hear anyone talking about it. And I, I think saw it's amazing. it on a review site at work. But oh, apart from yeah. that, I've not really heard anything about it. Yeah. I think, though, and I'm going to actually say this about my infatuation this mm. week, but the title is boring. Like, Yeah, it's these... also the title of another book which came out last year. Ah. Uh. Yeah, which I don't know if that's... I don't know how that did for them. But, like, like, that story sounds so much more exciting than that title makes it sound. And you would assume with these Violent Delights that there's going to be lots of Shakespearean stuff, Mm. but there's not really. Like, there's, there's, it's tragic, so Mm -hmm. I suppose you could say that's Shakespearean. But, yeah, the title, I I think the title suits it really well. But it maybe doesn't do it justice. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. But, yeah, highly recommend. It's very good. Okay, so what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens this week. I'd heard about this book for ages before I read it, but I've never actually heard what it was about. And I understand why, because it's really, really hard to explain. So great for an (laughs) audio-based podcast. But I'm going to try. Okay. So it's set in a marsh and the town near the marsh called Barclay Cove in North Carolina during the 20th century. And basically there are two narratives. But the first weird thing about the book is that it's not even half and half narratives. I'd say you've got like two thirds of it is narrative one and more than one third of it is the other one. Yeah. So it's less like a dual narrative book and more like one story interrupting another story. Okay. But it's really cool. (laughs) The secondary narrative is set in 1969, so either the future or the present, and it covers the year 1969 to 1970. The primary narrative, the main one, begins in 1952 and spans from then to 1970. So it's like the past or like the present, depending on what you decide the present is. (laughs) Now, the second narrative, the one that interrupts, is a detective story and it follows a murder investigation and I'm not going to say anything more about it because you can't (laughs) (laughs) which is a shame because it's great but there we go it's a murder case that's all you get the primary narrative is the story of Kaya 
the protagonist, who is a little girl who lives all alone in the depths of the swamp. And it is one of the most beautiful, (laughs) heartbreaking stories that I've read in years. The book begins again with a prologue, but I'm not going to read that. But her story begins with her watching her mother leave the family. Okay. And I'm just going to read the first page of that to let you kind of hear the tone. (laughs) So this is 1952. The morning burned so August hot, the marsh's moist breath hung the oaks and pines with fog. The palmetto patches stood unusually quiet, except for the low, slow flap of the heron's wings lifting from the lagoon. And then Kaya, only six at the time, heard the screen door slap. Standing on the stool, she stopped scrubbing grits from the pot and lowered it into the basin of worn-out suds. No sounds now but her own breathing. Who had left the shack? Not Ma. She never let the door slam. But when Kaya ran to the porch, she saw her mother in a long brown skirt, kick pleats nipping at her ankles as she walked down the sandy lane in high heels. The stubby-nosed shoes were fake alligator skin, her only going-out pair. Kaya wanted to haul her out, but knew not to rouse Pa, so opened the door and stood on the brick and board steps. From there, she saw the blue train case Ma carried. Usually, with the confidence of a pup, Kaya knew her mother would return with meat wrapped in greasy brown paper or with a chicken, head dangling down. But she never wore the gator heels, never took a case. Ma always looked back where the foot lane met the road, one arm held high, white palm waving, as she turned onto the track, which wove through bog forests, cattail lagoons, and maybe, if the tide obliged, eventually into town. But today she walked on, unsteady in the ruts. Her tall figure emerged now and then through the holes of the forest, until only swatches of white scarf flashed between the leaves. Kaya sprinted to the spot she knew would bear the road. Surely Ma would wave from there. But she arrived only in time to glimpse the blue case, the colour so wrong for the woods, as it disappeared. A heaviness, thick as black cotton mud, pushed her chest as she returned to the steps to wait. Oh, It's so sad. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the beginning, and it really just kind of gets worse (laughs) from there. By the time Kaya's seven, her brothers and sisters and father have all left her too. Basically, they all leave to escape the dad, and then the dad leaves. Okay. So she's all alone. And she survives in the first instance by collecting mussels on the beaches of the marsh and selling them to one of my favourite characters, the shopkeeper, Jumpin', who is this black man that runs a boat fuel stop near, like, they have a segregated coloured town, Mm because it's the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And he becomes a kind of, like, benevolent guiding presence in the novel. But basically, her narrative starts as, like, a feral child story. It reminded me of reading Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn or like even To Kill a Mockingbird where mm-hmm. like they're just running wild a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But it's so much harder and more like survivalist yeah. than those. And we watch her grow up in the marsh and we see the characters that come in and out of her life and it basically becomes like a coming of age tale in a very strange circumstance. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like, so much happens in this book. It's not even that big a book. It's, what, like, 300-and-odd pages? Yeah. So much happens in it that, I like, I could talk about it for days. 
But the one thing, the one theme that made me really fall in love with this book is that it's a total love letter to learning outside of education. All right, yeah. So Kaya's intelligence is really closely bound with nature. She's kind of like the Marsh personified in the in the book mm-hmm. because it's the thing that she understands best. But I just wanted to read a few passages that are kind of about learning outside of, like I say, education. Mm-hmm. So this passage is near the start of the book, not too long after her mother's left. Ma had always said the autumn moon showed up for Kaya's birthday. So even though she couldn't remember the date of her birth, one evening when the moon rose, swollen and golden from the lagoon, Kaya said to herself, I reckon I'm seven. Pa never mentioned it. Certainly there was no cake. He didn't say anything about her going to school either, and she, not knowing much about it, was too afraid to bring it up. Surely Ma would come back for her birthday. So the morning after the harvest moon, she put on the calico dress and stared down the lane. Kaya willed Ma to be walking towards the shack, still in her alligator shoes and long skirt. When no one came, she got the pot of grits and walked through the woods to the seashore. Hands to her mouth, she held her head back and called, Kyo, kyo, kyo. Specks of silver appeared in the sky from up and down the beach, from over the surf. Here they come. I can't count as high as that many gulls are, she said. Crying and screeching, the birds swirled and dived, hovered near her face, and landed as she tossed grits to them. Finally, they quieted and stood about preening, and she sat in the sand, her legs folded to the side. One large gull settled onto the sand near Kaya. It's my birthday, she told the bird. (laughs) So sweet. I know. This scene almost made me cry when I read it, and I'm afraid of birds. Um, <laughs> and I was only 20 pages in, but it's such a lonely image, like, this wee girl telling yeah. a flock of birds that it's her birthday. It's so, like, childlike as well, that sentence where it's just like, oh, I think it's my birthday. I, yeah. like, oh. Oh, no. <laughs> and I thought, like, the image of it as well, like, birds which can fly away are, like, her family, yeah. but she can't. Yeah. Oh, it hurts me. But we do see the seeds of learning being sown in nature here because she remembers that the moon can help her tell time and the fact that she wants to count so she knows how many gulls there are. Yeah. So at first, Kaya does want to go to school because, as she puts it, she wanted to learn to read in what came after 29. (laughs) (laughs) But the one day that she goes, she's like laughed at and bullied for being swamp trash. The kids are really cruel to her. Yeah. Like it's it's a horrible scene. I'm not gonna read it. But that chapter ends with the line: Kaya never went back to school a day in her life. She returned to heron watching and shell collecting, where she reckoned she could learn something. I can already coo like a dove, she told herself, and lots better than them, even with all them fine shoes. <laughs> but then the next bit immediately goes on to show us what kind of education she will have which is like a kind of creative one fueled by her imagination mm-hmm. so this this comes just after a line break after that one morning a few weeks after her day at school the sun glared white hot as kaya climbed into her brother's tree fort at the beach and searched for sailing ships hung with skull and crossbone flags proving that imagination grows in the loneliest of soils she shouted ho Pirates, ho! 
Brandishing her sword, she jumped from the tree to attack. Suddenly, pain shot through her right foot, racing like fire up her leg. Knees caving in, she fell on her side and shrieked. She saw a long, rusty nail sticking deep in the bottom of her foot. Pa! she screamed. She tried to remember if he'd come home last night. Help me! She cried out, but there was no answer. In one fast move, she reached down and yanked the nail out, screaming to cover the pain. She moved her arms through the sand in nonsensical motions, whimpering. Finally, she sat up and looked at the bottom of her foot. There was almost no blood, just the tiny opening of a small, deep wound. Right then, she remembered the lockjaw. Her stomach went tight and she felt cold. Jodie had told her about a boy who stepped on a rusty nail and didn't get a tetanus shot. His jaws jammed shut, clenched so tight he couldn't open his mouth. Then his spine cramped backward like a bow, but there was nothing anybody could do but stand there and watch him die from the contortions. Jodie was very clear on one point. You had to get the shot within two days after stepping on a nail, or you were doomed. Kaya had no idea how to get one of those shots. (sighs) And then a couple of pages later, I'll just skip ahead a bit, it reads... So she she basically has to nurse herself back to health and like pack up her own injury, mm. um, and she doesn't know how, where to get a shot, and she doesn't get one. Yeah. And so then it reads, she walked to the pool twice a day for a week, living on saltines and Crisco, and Pa never came home the whole time. By the eighth day, she could circle her foot without stiffness, and the pain had retreated to the surface. She danced a little jig, favouring her foot, squealing, "I did it." I did it. The next morning, she headed for the beach to find more pirates. First thing I'm going to do is boss my crew to pick up all them nails. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously it's funny and, like, tragic because that last line where she's still in her wee pretend game. Yeah. It, like, shows how resilient our imagination is. Yeah. But what she's learned is that wounds heal, right? She's, like, observed it and she's done the experiment. And that makes this next bit so perfectly placed because it ties that creativity and street sense to emotional intelligence. So right after that foot episode, there's another line break and it just says, Every morning she woke early, still listening for the clatter of Ma's busy cooking. Ma's favourite breakfast had been scrambled eggs from her own hens, ripe red tomatoes sliced and cornbread fritters made by pouring a mixture of cornmeal, water and salt onto grease so hot the concoction bubbled up the edges frying into crispy lace. Ma said you weren't really frying something unless you could hear it crackling from the next room, and all her life Kaya had heard those fritters popping in grease when she woke, smelled the blue, hot corn smoke. But now the kitchen was silent, cold, and Kaya slipped from her porch bed and stole to the lagoon. Months passed, winter easing gently into place, as southern winters do. The sun, warm as a blanket, wrapped Kaya's shoulders, coaxing her deeper into the marsh. Sometimes she heard night sounds she didn't know, or jumped from lightning too close, but whenever she stumbled, it was the land that caught her. Until at last, at some unclaimed moment, the heart pain seeped away like water into sand. Still there, but deep. Kaya laid her hand upon the breathing wet earth, and the marsh became her mother. Oh. I feel like that's all I've done after every quote's gone, yeah. oh. I know, it's so sad though. <laughs> yeah. But like I love that like juxtaposition of her foot healing and then her like learning to like 
let go of the things that hurt her. Yeah. And she's still only seven. Yeah. In this bit. But it's just put there, like, so delicately. I don't know, it's so good. (laughs) And the next scene, I've only got two more, but the next scene that I want to read is such a good example of, like, the lyrical nature writing in this book, Mm -hmm. and also the sense of, like, curiosity and adventure that are important to her character. So she's constantly torn between the need to secure what she has because she needs to survive and like yearning to go out and experience more of the world. And that carries through the book but I think you see it first here when her dad leaves her alone for a few days and she decides to take out his boat on her own. (laughs) It's proper Huckleberry Finn vibes, it's really good. So this is quite a long quote but I think it's worth it. One morning, Pa, shaved fresh and dressed in a wrinkled button-down shirt, came into the kitchen and said he was leaving on the trailways bus for Asheville to discuss some issues with the army. He figured he had more disability due him and was off to see about it and wouldn't be back for three or four days. He'd never told Kaya his business, where he was going or when he was coming back, so standing there in her two short bib overalls, she stared up at him, mute. I believe you deaf and dumb as all get out, he said the porch door slapping behind him. Kaya watched him gimp along the path, left leg swinging to the side, then forward. Her fingers knotted. Maybe they were all going to leave her, one by one, down this lane. When he reached the road and unexpectedly looked back, she threw her hand up and waved hard, a shot to keep him tethered. Pa lifted an arm in a quick, dismissive salutation, but it was something. It was more than Ma had done. From there, she wandered to the lagoon, where the early light caught the glimmer of hundreds of dragonfly wings. Oaks and thick brush encircled the water, darkening it cave-like, and she stopped as she eyed Pa's boat drifting there on the line. If she took it into the marsh and he found out, he'd take his belt to her, or the paddle he kept by the porch door, the welcome bat, Jodie had called it. Perhaps a yearning to reach out yonder pulled her towards the boat, a bent-up, flat-bottomed metal skiff Pa used for fishing. She'd been out in it all in her life, usually with Jodie. Sometimes he'd let her steer. She even knew the way through some of the intricate channels and estuaries that wandered through the patchwork of water and land, land and water, finally to the sea. Because even though the ocean was just beyond the trees surrounding the shack, the only way to get there by boat was to go in the opposite direction, inland, and wind through miles of maze of waterways that eventually hooked back to the sea. But being only seven and a girl, she'd never taken the boat out by herself. It floated there, tied by a single cotton line to a log. Grey grunge, frayed fishing tackle and half-crushed beer cans covered the boat floor. Stepping in, she said out loud, Gotta check the gas like Jodie said, so Pa won't figure I took it. She poked a broken reed into the rusted tank. Not for a short ride, I reckon. Like any good robber, she looked around, then flicked the cotton line free of the log and pulled forward with the lone paddle. The silent cloud of dragonflies parted before her. Not able to resist, she pulled the starter rope and jerked back when the motor caught the first time, sputtering and burping white smoke. Grabbing the tiller, she turned the throttle too far, and the boat turned sharply, the engine screaming. She released the throttle, threw her hands up, and the boat eased to a drift, purring. When in trouble... Just let go. Go back to idle. Accelerating now more gently, she steered around the old fallen cypress, put, 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 beyond the piled sticks of the beaver lodge. Then, holding her breath, she steered toward the lagoon entrance, 
almost hidden by brambles. Ducking beneath the low-hanging limbs of giant trees, she churned slowly through the thicket for more than a hundred yards as easy turtles slid from water logs. A floating mat of duckweed coloured the water as green as the leafy ceiling, creating an emerald tunnel. Finally, the trees parted, and she glided into a place of wide sky and reaching grasses and the sounds of calling birds. The view a chick gets, she reckoned, when it finally breaks its shell. And then I'm just going to skip ahead a wee bit. So she goes further and further through the marsh. As she rounded a stand of tall grass, suddenly the ocean's face, grey, stern and pulsing, frowned at her. Waves slammed one another, awash in their own white saliva, breaking apart on the shore with loud booms, energy searching for a beachhead. Then they flattened into quiet tongues of foam, waiting for the next surge. The surf taunted her, daring her to breach the waves and enter the sea, but without Jodie her courage failed. Time to turn around anyway. Thunderheads grew in the western sky, forming huge grey mushrooms pressing at the seams. There'd been no other people, not even distant boats, so it was a surprise when she entered the large estuary again and there, close against the marsh grass, was a boy fishing from another battered rig. Her course would take her only twenty feet from him. By now she looked every bit the swamp child, hair blown into tangles, dusty cheeks streaked with wind tears. Neither low gas nor storm threat gave her the same edgy feeling as seeing another person, especially a boy. Ma had told her older sisters to watch out for them. If you look tempting, men turn into predators. Squishing her lips tight, she thought, what am I going to do? I gotta go right by him. From the corner of her eye, she saw he was thin, his golden curls stuffed under a red baseball cap. Much older than she, eleven, maybe twelve. Her face was grim as she approached, but he smiled at her, warm and open, and touched the brim of his hat like a gentleman greeting a fine lady in a gown and bonnet. She nodded slightly, then looked ahead, increasing the throttle and passing him by. All she could think of now was getting back to familiar footing, but somewhere she must have turned wrong, for when she reached the second string of lagoons, she couldn't find the channel that led home. Round and round, near oak knees and myrtle thickets, she searched. A slow panic eased in. Now the grass banks, sandbars and bends all looked the same. She cut the engine and stood smack dab in the middle of the boat, balancing with feet spread wide, trying to see over the reeds, but she couldn't. She sat, lost, low on gas, storm coming. Stealing Pa's words, she cussed her brother for leaving. Damn it, you Jody, shit fire and fall in. You just shit fire and fall in it. She whimpered once as the boat drifted in soft current. Clouds, gaining ground against the sun, moved, weighted but silent overhead, pushing the sky and dragging shadows across the clear water. Could be a gale any minute. Worse, though, if she wandered too long, Pa would know she took the boat. She eased ahead. Maybe she could find that boy. Another few minutes of creek brought a bend and the large estuary ahead, and on the other side, the boy in his boat. Egrets took flight, a line of white flags against the mounting grey clouds. She anchored him hard with her eyes, afraid to go near him, afraid not to. Finally, she turned across the estuary. He looked up when she neared. Hey, he said. Hey, she looked beyond his shoulder into the reeds. Which way you headed anyhow, he asked. Not out, I hope. That storm's coming. No, she said, looking down at the water. You okay? Her throat tightened against a sob. She nodded but couldn't speak. You lost? She bobbed her head again. 
wasn't going to cry like a girl. Well then, I get lost all the time, he said and smiled. Yeah, I know you. You're Jodie Clark's sister. I used to be. He's gone. Well, you're still as... But he let it drop. How'd you know me? She threw a quick, direct look at his eyes. Oh, I've been fishing with Jodie some. I saw you a couple of times. You were just a little kid. You're Kaya, right? Someone knew her name. She was taken aback, felt anchored to something, released from something else. Yeah, you know my place from here. Reckon I do. It's about time anyhow. He nodded at the clouds. Follow me. He pulled his line, put tackle in the box, and started his outboard. As he headed across the estuary, he waved and she followed. Cruising slowly, he went directly to the right channel, looked back to make sure she'd made the turn, and kept going. He did that at every bend to the oak lagoons. As he turned into the dark waterway toward home, she could see where she'd gone wrong and she would never make that mistake again. He guided her, even after she waved that she knew her way, across her lagoon, up to the shore where the shack squatted in the woods. She motored up to the old waterlogged pine and tied up. He drifted back from her boat, bobbing in their contrary wakes. You okay now? Yeah. Well, storm's coming. I better get. She nodded, then remembered how Ma taught her. Thank you. All right then. My name's Tate in case you see me again. She didn't respond, so he said, bye now. (laughs) (laughs) So I know that was really long, but so much that I love in that scene. First of all, all of the nature terms. Mm. There's so many words that I hadn't realised how many words there are for like swamp, Mm. which I just think is really nice. The image of her breaking into that clearing, like a chick, what a chick sees when it comes out of the shell. I loved the emerald tunnel, like right before before that that. line as well. Yeah, so pretty. And then like all of the tension of like the sea and like the storm coming, and she wants to go in to see, but she doesn't want to go in to see. She wants to go up to the boy, but she doesn't want to go up to the boy. Yeah, learning to accept help and kindness. It's just such a like beautiful scene. But I think what is like significant in terms of the theme is that she's such a conscious learner and it's really shown in the writing like that line she knew she'd never make that mistake again Mm. like it really makes a point of showing each thing that Kaya learns and all of them no matter how small are made exciting because she starts off knowing nothing yeah and so like the plot almost of the first half of the novel is her making sense of the world around her but in like a really concrete way not like the wishy-washy way that a lot of coming-of-age stories would use that phrase. Yeah. I really like that. And so there's just one more short scene that I want to read because it made me cry. <laughs> and it's about reading. Okay. So Kaya, never having been to school, can't read. I don't want to give too much away, but Kaya and the boy from the boat, Tate, strike up this like unlikely friendship by exchanging rare feathers that they find in the marsh. Aww. It's really wholesome. (laughs) And at one point when she's eight or nine, he offers to teach her how to read. The next day, when the sound of Tate's motor chugged through the channel, Kaya ran to the lagoon and stood in the bushes, watching him step out of his boat holding a rucksack. Looking around, he called out to her, and she stepped slowly forward, dressed in jeans that fit and a white blouse with mismatched buttons. Hey Kaya, sorry I couldn't get here sooner. Had to help my dad, but we'll get you reading in no time. Hey Tate. Let's sit here. He pointed to an oak knee in deep shade of the lagoon. From the rucksack, he pulled out a thin, faded book of the alphabet and a lined writing pad. 
With a careful, slow hand, he formed the letters between the lines. A. Big A. B. Big B. Asking her to do the same. Patient with her tongue between lips effort. As she wrote, he said the letters out loud. Softly. Slowly. She remembered some of the letters from Jodie and Ma, but didn't know much at all about putting them into proper words. After only minutes, he said, See, you can already write a word. What do you mean? C-A-B. You can write the word cab. What's cab? She asked, and he knew not to laugh. Don't worry if you don't know it. Let's keep going. Soon you'll write a word you know. Later, he said, you'll have to work lots more on the alphabet. It'll take a little while to get it, but you can already read a bit. I'll show you. He didn't have a grammar reader, so her first book was his dad's copy of Aldo Leopold's A Sand County Almanac. He pointed to the opening sentence and asked her to read it back to him. The first word was there, and she had to go back to the alphabet and practice the sound of each letter, but he was patient, explaining the special sound of th, and when she finally said it, she threw her arms up and laughed. Beaming, he watched her. Slowly, she unravelled each word of the sentence. There are some who can live without wild things, and some who cannot. Oh, she said. Oh. You can read, Kaya. There will never be a time again when you can't. It ain't just that, she spoke almost in a whisper. I wasn't aware that words could hold so much. I didn't know a sentence could be so full. He smiled. That's a very good sentence. Not all words hold that much. <laughs> oh no! It's so lovely. Isn't that just the best scene? Yeah. So, I love that all the way up until this point, the marsh has been Kaya's starting point for understanding the world, and it's a nature guide that's the book that she learns to read. Yeah. Oh, it's so poetic. Don't want to give it away too much, but Kaya's collecting of shells and like her fascination with the marsh does become more and more intellectual and like scientific the more that she starts mm. to read mm-hmm. so it's just like a beautiful introduction to that story but yeah that only takes us about a third into the book and the narrative action really starts when she hits adolescence but those scenes to me like I just couldn't forget about them after I read them I was yeah. like that was so beautiful and I don't feel like you get a lot of stories where like lessons get their time to shine yeah like that so it just it made me feel really like grateful for getting to study things. Yeah, yeah. I was true. like, I don't know. It's almost it's like the opposite of dark academia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like wholesome <laughs> academia. Yeah. Which is actually no surprise because when you look into the author Delia Owens as this total powerhouse nature activist and wildlife scientist and she's written shitloads of non-fiction books and this is her first novel right um and i do think you can tell that because i do think there is a lot of like little first novel quirks in the writing yeah but it's so earnest that i don't even mind that Mm. it feels like a first novel yeah so yeah i'm all for more scientists with niche interests (laughs) writing fiction (laughs) yeah but yeah like i say it's hard to describe this book but those are some nice bits. Yeah, I have had... Who was it? Oh, I think it was Hamza. Hamza. Yeah, he told me to read it as well. He probably told us at the same time yeah. to read it. And it is one that I do want to get to, but I think it is I had no idea what it was about, so I just wasn't interested and because the, I didn't know what it was about. The title sucks. But yeah, it sounds very, like, like 
contemporary like bland contemporary mm-hmm. fiction <laughs> which i understand it isn't but well that... it almost kind of is but it, i just think it's like i don't know i think it's that and like the pink cover and yeah. like i don't know it, it is a little bit off-putting to me but i do what you've told me i i genuinely think i would like that book yeah it's very slow and i don't mind a it like book, it unravels very well at the end yeah basically when the two narratives start to meet yeah but like it is like so nice to just kind of because it, it like it's about a marsh and a swamp and everything there is so slow moving yeah. and like decaying and everything. It's very like that vibe. Yeah. And you really like when I was I took me about two weeks to read it, which is long for me reading a book. Yeah. And um I felt like I was in a marsh in my head. Yeah. It was so good. I think they're making it into a series. Really? Um what's her name from normal people she's i I assume is it kaya kaya like i I assume it's her that she's playing yeah here i can totally see that yeah i can't remember who else is casting it but i remember specifically seeing that she was casting it yeah i just hope that they get that accent right because it's very appellation so yeah but yeah it's really good so that's all i've got nice (laughs) it was was so long thanks for bearing with me that's all right i was very long last time So for our writing chat this week, we are going to talk about quotes about writing. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favourite quote about writing? Um, yeah, I've cheated. I've got three. That's fine. I've got two. <laughs> <laughs> so I have two kind of advicey, writer brainy kind of quotes, and then I have one that's actually from a book and is way more like whimsical. Mm-hmm. But I think it'll make sense when I read it. Why I picked it. First quote. It's from Neil Gaiman, Mm -hmm. because I do just think he's brilliant. And it's, you get ideas all the time. The only difference between writers and other people is that we notice when we're doing it. Ooh. Yeah. And I like that, because I do think it's true. I think it's like, it's something I've noticed. The more I'm like, open with people about my writing and where my ideas come from, maybe with like friends or family who aren't writers, Mm -hmm. they always seem to be a bit baffled. When I'm like, oh, I saw this today and it made me think of this thing. And so I worked out how to put it into this. like, mm. the, And they're always kind of like, huh? <laughs> what? Because <laughs> like, writing just isn't just the dreaming up of things. It's like the, the knowing what to do mm-hmm. with the ideas and like knowing in your head what's a good idea and what's a bad idea. Yeah. And I like that this quote from Neil Gaiman kind of like solidifies that. Definitely. Go Neil. Yeah. Do you want me to just keep going? Yeah. And yeah. Then, okay. So my second quote. It's from Lee Bardugo, and it's scared artists make bad art. The idea of a writer trying to please everyone or trying to please the most people is not the way I want to create. And I heard this when I was thinking about my writing and how it's a conversation I've had quite a bit with Stephanie, because obviously we're helping each other out writing, about how like I want my books to be diverse but I'm like a straight white cis person Mm -hmm. and so I don't want people to think that I'm like writing out of turn or that I'm trying to take like voices away Mm. from other people and that's obviously a whole other huge conversation for another day yeah but I think this quote resonated with me because like she's right you're never going to please everyone Mm. so it is important to like yes be mindful 
of people who aren't like you yeah <laughs> but to also trust that you're writing your story and that's always going to be better than the one that you've tried to force certain aspects of so I just think that's like a good reminder yeah definitely and also like I think that yeah you have to have a little bit of bravery and like fake confidence in what you're doing yeah until it pull or it won't pull off yeah no definitely and my final quote is from the night circus by Erin Morgenstern and it goes someone needs to tell those tales when the battles are fought and won and lost when the pirates find their treasures and the dragons eat their foes for breakfast with a nice cup of lapsang sushong someone needs to tell their bits of overlapping narrative there's magic in that it's in the listener and for each and every ear it will be different and it will affect them in ways they can never predict from the mundane to the profound you may tell a tale that takes up residence in someone's soul, becomes their blood and self and purpose. That tale will move them and drive them and who knows what they might do because of it, because of your words. That is your role, your gift. Oof. So, <laughs> the person who's being told that isn't exactly a, a writer, but I think you can gather yeah. that Erin Morgenstern is using it as a metaphor for storytelling, Absolutely. for being a writer. So... This one isn't exactly like writing advice or like necessarily just about writing, but it's still something I like to keep in mind that like books can be very special experiences for people. Mm -hmm. And like that's my hope for if slash when I get published is that someone might feel that way Mm. about something I write. So that's kind of like a motivational quote (laughs) for me. And yeah, that's my my three quotes that I chose. Those are very good quotes. Thank you. <laughs> so for mine, I saw favourite quote about writing and obviously the first thing that came to my head was the Taylor Swift lyric. <laughs> obviously. Like Easily. it came so instantly that I did not even think further. There's probably loads of better ones that I've overlooked. <laughs> but the lyric is, and you understand now why they lost their minds and fought the wars and why I've spent my whole life trying to put it into words mm. from her song You Are In Love. And it legitimately changed my life (laughs) because I think we were talking about this last time but hearing that completely shifted my perspective on writing and helped me embrace the idea of hyper fixation as a good thing Mm. and made me realize that like the point of writing isn't to get the right words the first time but to write your way closer and closer to the right words every time yeah. So that quote really helps me to get drafting when I feel stuck because she's like, I've spent my whole life trying to put this into words. Yeah, yeah. And like, I remember so vividly hearing that. I listened to that album in the car the first time I listened to it. And it was like <laughs> nighttime and I was driving. And it's a very soft and beautiful song anyway. And then that line is at the end of the bridge. And I was like, <gasps> <laughs> wow. Another nice one, a runner up, if you will, <laughs> is. um. There's a bit from my favourite poem, Peanut Butter, by Eileen Miles, and it goes, I write because I would like to be used for years after my death. Not only my body will be compost, but the thoughts I left during my life. And during my life, I was a woman with hazel eyes. Oh, that's lovely. I literally wrote, which I think is lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's just, it's quite motivational and it's quite, like, simple, but yeah, like, Sometimes when you don't write for anything else, it's just like, well, maybe this will be useful. Yeah.
do you have a quick fire favorite this week yes i have another song yeah um, it's called wildflower by the national parks you love a wildflower song um, yeah i literally my next line in my notes is i feel like i'm preconditioned to love <laughs> songs titled wildflower obviously wildflower by five sauce and wildflowers by dolly parton mm-hmm. are like two of my favorite songs but anyway, I've known about this song for a while. I think their album, which is also called Wildflower, came out last year, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And the reason I've been listening to it so much recently is because it's on the playlist for my novel and I've been working on like big declaration of feelings scenes and this song is just like perfect for that. The chorus goes, I think you'll like these lyrics. Mm-hmm. And if you could be my open skies, then I could be your wildflower. I could be your wildflower. And underneath the sea of stars, I'll bloom to make it through to where everything could be ours. Oh, oh, so good. It just feels very like wanderlusty and uplifting and romantic, like running in a hand through a wildflower meadow. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the connotation with like any wildflower song is that, you know, they're beautiful flowers that grow in unlikely places so i can understand why there are so many songs that use that image Mm -hmm. and yeah i just always love a love song that is not just a ballad Mm -hmm. as you guys probably already know (laughs) from my music taste and this is just such a good one and i think the national parks are normally described as like folk pop Mm. but i'd probably throw a bit like rock in there as well it's just a very good song highly recommend nice i love that image as well of like the open sky and the blooming like yeah the idea of someone being the sky is very yes. romantic to me yes definitely so nice. what's your quick for our favorite mine has got to be the dodie music video that recently came out called i kissed someone it wasn't you mm. so i love this for a few reasons a it's a great song b it has a great title <laughs> um and see, the video is directed by Hazel Hayes. Yeah, I love Hazel. Who wrote Out of Love, which I've talked about on here last season. And as you know, Hazel Hayes writes romance, but her background is in filmmaking and horror. Yeah. And so those two sides of her aesthetic come together so well in this video because of the content of the song. So the song is basically about getting loads of people after you break up with someone but it leaves you feeling really empty. And Hayes has directed this video so that it starts off looking like a romance, it's very pretty, and it slowly disintegrates into this really disconcerting horror where all the people that Dodie gets with don't have faces. Mm. They look like the no-face zombie from Scooby-Doo, where it's like fabric stitched across their face. Yeah. It's very, like, Coraline-y. Oh, it's horrible. And Dory acts brilliantly in it as well, which I don't think she gets enough credit for in her videos. But I wanted to read this quote from Hazel Hayes' Instagram about it because it made me think of, like, us collaborating. <laughs> and also they were flatmates. Yeah. So it has a picture of Dory, like, from the video, like, looking like she's naked in bed with this guy with no face, which is quite a departure for Dory. <laughs> and the caption is simply... I told Dodie she couldn't wear twee dungarees or a cutesy postman uniform in this video. Bitch really ran with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I saw that one. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I've just been really enjoying it. And I'd like, I love a good music video. And normally I like pretty ones. And this one was like disturbing to me. So I quite enjoyed yeah. that. 
I saw that because her new album, well, her first album has just come out. Yeah. And Jack Howard's directed like a whole, you know, basically hour long music video. Like he's of each one. Yeah, yeah. of each one. Uh, and I love Jack Howard's directing stuff. Yeah, so. I'm buzzing to watch that because yeah. it looks really good. Because I'm not like I don't mind Dodie. I just don't listen to her. But I feel like she just works with such cool people that I love anyway. Mm-hmm. So I always do find myself, I end up watching her music videos because they're always really good. Yeah. And I think, like, even if you don't love her sound, I think, like, the like like the facial expressions and everything that she does in her videos and, like, her costume and makeup is always yeah. really cool. So it's just, like, a fun, mm-hmm. it's a fun thing. Hey, do you have a route for us? Yes, so my route this week, in keeping with my infatuation, is Crawdad. Because my dumbass read the whole book without actually knowing what a crawdad was. Okay. And I assumed it was a bird, because it kind of sounds like craw, and apparently they sing, because, like, where the crawdads sing. But no, they're crayfish, which aren't fish at all. <laughs> they're lobster-looking thingies. <laughs> so, like, right, crayfish, crawdad... That's just like a West Appalachian dialect thing. I get that. But the etymology <laughs> of crayfish is very interesting in itself. Okay. Because it comes from the old French word crevice. Crevice. Right. That then went th- via the German <laughs> word kreb, which became English crab. Mm-hmm. And around the 16th century, the second syllable got corrupted by the association of crabs with fish. So instead of crevice, it became crayfish, which in turn became crawdad, which, to underline the original point, is not a bird or a fish, (laughs) which is upsetting to me. (laughs) But it's got got cool etymology, so there's that. I I knew they were... I don't know if I could have said they were crayfish, but I knew they were, like, crayfish-like things. I had no idea what they were. I don't know where I heard that. Just one of those it's things, like, it's like a really poignant line in the book where it's like out there yonder where the crawdads sing and I'm like oh it's birds <laughs> no. yeah so I think that's a fair assumption to make I was, so. was, it made sense <laughs> in the context I was like yeah. that's what animal sings yes. and it makes I hate I forget that like crustaceans can make that weird singing sound and that's just like give a whole new creepy dimension to me anyway. yeah I don't enjoy that no you have an insight for us yeah so I've mentioned the Honeymoon Apothecary before. It's a candle company we both really love. Mm-hmm. And they sent out Zodiac love letters to their newsletter subscribers recently. And I just wanted to read ours out because they're just really nice. Okay. Um, and I think it's nice to be like reminded of your positive personality features every now and then. Because <laughs> we send so many disparaging <laughs> yeah. Taurus and Pisces memes to each other. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'll read yours first. Aww. Dear Taurus, you're the kind of person that people feel safe around. Your energy is so beautiful and grounding. Not only are you kind and do everything in your power to make others feel comfortable, you show your love through your actions so we know it's sincere. Your calmness and integrity are both qualities that we aspire to possess. In a world that is rife with half-hearted promises, we need you, Taurus, who is always reliable with their words and can always be counted on. Your inner strength and unwavering attitude is why we love you. Aww. <laughs> it's really sweet. That's it? so nice. And here's mine. 
Dear Pisces, your dreamy energy is not of this world. You're a social butterfly, your kindness puts everyone in the room at ease. But it's what lies beneath that intrigues us so much. You are a poet and an artist, an imagination that we aspire to have. You wear your heart on your sleeve and crack your heart so wide for everyone to fit in. Your emotions are what guide you and they are such a gift. Your intuition is unmatched and your empathy and ability to feel for others and help them is beautiful. In a world full of hard people, to remain as soft and loving as you do is a rare thing and that's why we love you. Oh, <laughs> they're just really nice. So I just saved those so that I can just go back and <laughs> read them when I'm having a down day. That's really sweet. Also... I keep seeing memes of being like good like astrology pairings for like collaboration and friendship and we all like Pisces and Taurus always comes up. Yeah. And can I just say that like my hardness and your softness <laughs> no wonder we're such a good duo. I know, yeah, it's true. I, I told you this before, I'm attracted to Tauruses. I know so many Tauruses, <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> we're all just like we must protect the baby, the soft baby. <laughs> Okay, so our question for this week is from Sophia and she has asked how far ahead do you plan your next read? So honestly not far at all for yeah, me. Yeah no I'm the same. <laughs> I finish a book, look about and pick another book from my shelf and if there's nothing there I go to the shop and pick a new one. I'm rubbish at keeping TBR lists so I usually just go with what I feel like and the only time that I thought of that changing is if I've pre-ordered a book and it's due to arrive and I finish, I've just finished a book, mm-hmm. I'll maybe pick one that I know I can finish in between. Yeah. But that's, like, the only time that I'd, like, do that. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same. I kind of... I wonder if this person watches my TikToks, because I actually made a video about this not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Because on BookTok, it's a thing where, like, people plan out what they're going to read for the month ahead. Oh. And But I made a video being, like, Why? <laughs> Because I never do that. Like, I'm the same as you at most. When I'm reading a book, maybe, I'll be like, oh, I, I want to read that next. Yeah. Like, but the comments I got on that video were really interesting. Like, some people had a good reason to plan, like, borrowing books from the library. Mm. Obviously, you do need to plan ahead for that. Or, like, having coursework or, mm-hmm. like, book reviews to factor in. That makes sense. But it was the answers from people who who didn't have reasons like that like people who are purely reading as a hobby I noticed that people still felt like they had to plan things out or they'd like panic about the choice and I'm just like reading's not something to panic about like nah I don't know I just think chill out but yeah no my my answer is basically the same like once I'm finished a book or maybe like nearing the end of the book I'm on I'll think like what am I in the mood for do I want to read something similar do I want to read something different? Yeah, it depends. What have I got? <laughs> it depends on the book hangover as well. Because sometimes your yeah. book hangover, you're like, I need something that's like this or I can't read anything else. Yeah. But sometimes you're like, I need to get as far away from that as possible. Yeah, no, exactly. And I also thought I'd just factor in the podcast. Mm-hmm. But like, I feel like I don't really pick books to read for the podcast because we've made it such a natural structure where it's just like what we're interested in at the time Mm -hmm. so I don't really feel a pressure to pick reads for that either I just end up talking about 
what books I've Yeah, again, read. the only time that um, I do that is when I've not got my shit together and I think, well, I need to pick a book that is short. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, for the most part, I don't really plan ahead either. But I did think it was an interesting question because, yeah, like I said, I made that video and so many people were planners and I was just like, I don't get this at all. And I, I am quite a plan person. Oh, so am I. I love like, a list. Yeah, but I just... I, I think know. yeah like when it, I was even I'm trying to think though even when I was at uni I was very much just like whatever the next book is that I need to be reading yeah like whatever the next tutorial is I'll read that next yeah but I would never have like planned it out do you know what, like yeah planned it out was like your hobby reads or yeah. whatever yeah no I don't I've, I've a lot of people were commenting me like oh I'm such like saying the same as me like oh I'm a mood reader so apparently that's what we are we're okay. mood readers <laughs> nice good to know <laughs> Okay, so that's us this week. If you have any comments or questions, then our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com and we have social media, which is linked in the show notes along with everything we've talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music that we mention. It's getting so good. <laughs> it is a very good... I, I listen to it all the time. <laughs> um, and yeah, please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>